Man, man, it is good to see you this morning. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Judges. The book of Judges is in the Old Testament part of your Bible, which means it's near the beginning of your Bible. And I'll give you a cheat, a cheat sheet. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 228. All right, the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6 and Judges chapter 7. Give you just a second to turn there. As we turn there, I just want to celebrate and thank you guys. We had such an incredible Easter last week. We took a break from our study through the book of Judges. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus and celebrated Easter and everything that is Easter. I mean, it was just such an incredible Easter here at Eastside. So many different things. We had our highest attendance that we've had in almost two years. Um, since the church that we used to meet at before we moved here kicked us off campus. If you're new, that's another story for another day. But as we watch God build and rebuild his church, we are so excited about the way that God is drawing people to himself through his church. So many of the guests that I got to meet for the, the first time last week were at Eastside or at church for the first time or the first time in a long time which makes me really excited because that is who we are and that is why we're here. We're not trying to gather a bunch of church people. We are here to invite people to walk closely with God, people who grew up in faith, in church, in some way, somewhere along the way got disconnected or never been to church. Like we are here. God has planted us, on here, planted us here on a purpose to invite people to walk closely with Jesus. And then uh, in addition to that, um, yeah, just, just honestly, just so many, so many exciting things, so many good connections and people. So I'm so thankful. With that in mind, I'm so thankful for everyone who made our Easter celebration possible. It was a team effort. We had a great week. Uh, everyone from the setup team, they were here as the sun came up to make sure everything was in place. So we had the perfect environment to celebrate Easter, to worship together. The worship team that was here at the same time, and they practiced, they rehearsed, they, they did an incredible job leading us in worship. The kids team, I think they hid like 8,000 Easter eggs. That might be exaggerating by 1,000 or two, but none Nonetheless, they did an incredible job. We had a great kids program. Everyone from the coffee crew to the communion crew and everybody in between. Like, I am so grateful to be part of a church that is all in to invite people to follow God closely. And that's what we talked about. And that's who we are. That each and every one of you made it possible for us to celebrate the fact that no matter where we find ourselves in faith, Jesus is always inviting us to follow him. The invitation of Jesus is relatively simple. It's, it's sometimes hard to accomplish, but it's relatively simple. Follow me, Jesus says to the disciples in the first century and the followers of God in the 21st century. So the question that comes to mind today, it's always like, what are we going to talk about post-Easter? All this energy and excitement goes into the resurrection. We celebrate the resurrection every week. But what are we, here, here's the question that came to mind. When Easter really sinks in, you remember that, like when Easter really sinks in, like you grew up hearing about the good news of Jesus and the gospel of God's grace, that he put sin to death on the cross for you so that we can live a life free from sin, so we can live a life with God. When that really sinks in, how do we respond? What do we do? How do we live a life this week that looks different because of what we celebrated last week? And I think that's a valid question because so often as a church, not just our church, but the church, we talk all about going all in with God and getting baptized and giving your life to Jesus. And then as soon as you give your life to Jesus and you're, you're like most excited about everything that God has done for you, it's like, well, what do we do now? Jesus would say it's pretty simple. The invitation of Jesus is always come follow me. But here's our core conviction at Eastside. When we're following Jesus, we are leading others. 
our mission statement is we exist to lead others to experience immeasurably more, more of God's grace, more of his power, more of his presence in their life by inviting them to exchange the common for the holy. Literally, as we follow Jesus, we are leading others to follow Jesus. Jesus would say it this way, that a city on a hill cannot be hidden that you are the light of the world, that we are the light of the world, that if we're following Jesus, we are leading others. And so for the last few weeks before Easter, in the next few weeks, we're walking through the book of Judges rather quickly, looking at the life and leadership of these people that God gave to his people to lead his people back to him. I'm not going to give you the whole backstory, but the book of Judges is set in this time in the, the history of God's people in the Old Testament. So 1,500 years or so before Jesus and the people of God, they're trying to figure out if they're going to follow God faithfully, if they're just going to go the way of the world in which they live. And God is just constantly inviting them back. And without a strong leader, the people always drift away from God. They always drift the way of the world. And so it is in our lives and the lives of those who live life around us. People don't naturally drift towards God. Have you ever naturally drifted towards God like, honestly, think about it. And I know you guys are like super Christians because you're here the week after Easter, right? Everyone comes Easter week, but you're here like two weeks in a row. It's first time in a long time. But like, have you ever actually drifted towards God? Like you wake up in the morning without any thought and you thought, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm just going to put sin to death. Today feels like a good day. I'm just going to put sin to death. You know, I've um, started my day selfishly for 35 years. Today's the day I'm just going to stop that. Like we don't drift naturally. Have you ever like drifted towards generosity? Like, man, I just got all this money. What am I going to spend it on? I don't know. I guess I should give it to God. Just give it away. Like we don't drift towards God. It takes someone leading us closer to God. Well, who is that someone? And the answer is us. Like it's the church. All of us, we are here to lead others to follow God the way that we follow God, because here's what we know. We're not going to drift our ways. We're not going to drift towards God. But when we follow God, it makes life immeasurably better. Like when we add those core disciplines to our life, when we keep in step with the Holy Spirit, when we create this rhythm where we lean in, where we take action, where we, when we watch God work, when we live open-handed lives, when we cultivate restorative community, and we reflect all glory to God, we know when we make that the regular rhythm of our life, life gets better. We know that because God promises it and we've experienced it. And when we've experienced the goodness and the grace of God, it is our calling and our privilege to lead others to experience God for themselves. Now, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I just want you to hear what a joy it is to be part of the church. Because I'm going to talk to us as if we've all put our faith in Jesus. And I understand we're here from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, all different faith experiences. We're trying to figure out and navigate how to take our next step toward Jesus. We're going to talk about God's goodness and grace. But one of the greatest privileges of following God is that we get to lead others to follow God, to watch him work in our lives. And so that's why we're going to pick up the story in Judges chapter 6 with the story of a man named Gideon. We're picking up in part two, so I want to catch up kind of quickly. When we first met Gideon a couple weeks ago, he was threshing wheat in a wine press, which unless you've done any kind of Bible study, you have no idea what that means, and it means absolutely nothing to you because we don't thresh wheat today. But in those days, they would take the wheat harvest, and they would have to thresh it. And so they would go up on the second story where everybody could see where the wind was blowing, and they would throw the wheat up, and it would blow the shaft away, and what fell down they could take and turn into bread. Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press because he was so afraid that the Midianite people who were occupying the nation of Israel at the time, the enemies of God were occupying the, the, the place of God, 
They were so afraid that they would come and take away his crop that he went down into a hole in the ground, a literal hole in the ground, to thresh out the wheat because he didn't want to be seen. And all of Israel, all of God's people were cowering in fear at this time. We look at Gideon like he might be the exception, but really he was just kind of the prototype of what was going on among God's people. They were so afraid that this enemy nation would come and take away all of their crops and all of their plants and all of their livestock because they'd been doing it for year after year after year for seven years at this point in the story, that they were going to great measures, drastic measures to feed and protect their family. So Gideon is in a hole in the ground. Like when we meet him in those pages of God's word where Gideon is going to be a hero, he's hiding in a hole in the ground. But still God called Gideon because God is always calling his people to lead his people. In fact, when God finds Gideon cowering in the hole in the ground, he calls Gideon, oh, mighty man of valor, which is so hilarious, except for communicate something so important about God, is that when God sees us, like when God sees Gideon, he doesn't see us in our current circumstances. He sees us for the person he has created and called us to be. Like when God sees us struggling with sin, seeing like there, seeming like there's no way out of it, God doesn't see us as someone who is enslaved to sin. He sees us as someone who can be set free, who has been set free by the grace of God. Like that is what we celebrate last week with Easter Sunday. That's what we celebrate every single week, that God doesn't see us by our worst mistake or our circumstances. When we put our faith in Jesus, the Bible says we literally put on Jesus, that when God sees us, he doesn't see our imperfections, but the perfection of Jesus. If we feel like we are struggling with fear and anxiety or failure, God doesn't limit us by our current circumstances. He sees us for who he has created and called us to be, a leader of his people. And so that's what happens when God shows up. God shows up and he sees Gideon. He sees him hiding in a hole in the ground. And he says, mighty man of valor. And he tells him, I've called you to lead my people to fight against the enemies. And I will give your enemy into your hand. And Gideon's not so sure. He's like, are you sure, me? Have you ever done that when someone's like bestowing a compliment on you and you're like, me? And you're like, look to see if there's someone behind you. That's what Gideon's doing. Gideon's in a hole in the ground. God's the only other person there. And he speaks to him and Gideon's like, oh, can't be me can't be me because I know me, but God says, no, Gideon, it's you. And they have this kind of this back and forth where he brings this sacrifice and he worships and the angel of God uh, accepts the sacrifice. And all of a sudden, we're picking up the story here in verse, uh, where are we going to pick it up today? Verse 24. We're going to pick up the story in verse 24. Judges chapter 6, verse 24. We don't normally drop in in the middle, but this is where the story gets good. So it's where I wanted to start today. After all of that, it says in verse 24, it says, Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. Which, again, this verse is kind of like Old Testament rhetoric. It doesn't mean a lot to us today. But what it shows us is this is the moment where Gideon worships God. It's almost like God calls Gideon. Gideon's confused, but here God gets it. And when Gideon, I'm sorry, Gideon gets it. And when Gideon gets it, Gideon starts to worship God. God. God called Gideon. Gideon worshiped God. And so we assume, if we haven't read the rest of the story, everything from this point must be up and to the right, right? Like the, the, the fear, the anxiety, the trepidation, the cowardice, like that's all behind us at this point in the story. Well, generally speaking, everything from here forward is kind of trending up and to the right. But just like Gideon, have you ever noticed how following God is just like never a linear progression of obedience? Like, has that ever been your experience? 
Okay, because if so, you can come up here and talk talk, because we would love to hear. Following God is never like up and to the right all the time. It trends in that direction. But the invitation of Jesus, we say it all the time, is come follow me. And sometimes we feel like we're doing really good, like we're keeping close on Jesus' heels. Honestly, sometimes I'm thinking, like, if I could just get ahead of Jesus, that's just as dangerous, just for another reason. But sometimes, like, we're following Jesus, we're right on his heels, and sometimes it feels like we just can't keep up. It's like trying to follow, like, a, a toddler through, I don't know, like, Disney World. If you're trying to take, like, a kid through, I'm a guy of pretty substantial size, and so, like, my daughter is, like, this tall. She can, like, navigate through anything. I cannot catch her. So, like, I hold her, right? Like, but sometimes I feel like it's following, like, following Jesus. Like, Jesus, I just can't keep up. And then, honestly, sometimes we look at our life and we realize we quit trying. Like, and that's really convicting as church. It's the no place to admit, like, the truth, right? But sometimes we just feel like we just quit trying. We know the call of Jesus is come follow me. We know we were keeping in step with him for some time. He felt like he was getting away from us, and we just got too tired, too selfish, too focused on our own life, and so we just kind of threw our hands up and stopped. Here's the really cool thing. Gideon's story shows us how gracious God is, that he's constantly coming alongside Gideon, reminding him who he is and what he's called him to accomplish, how it is his power at work in Gideon's life that people will talk about for the rest of human history. But following Jesus is, 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 is sometimes two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, and we kind of stumble and stall for a moment. And I don't think we have to, like, imagine this. Like, this is all of our story. Like, last week, last week was Easter Sunday. And we're going to stop talking about it in just a second and start looking forward to next Easter. But, like, last week was Easter Sunday. Is it ever easier to follow Jesus on Easter Sunday? Like, even the non-Christians are Christians for an hour on Easter Sunday, right? Like, everybody comes to church, and everybody's excited, and you're wearing your Easter best, and the preacher's got the best sermon, and uh, the music is really good, and everything is so exciting. And following Jesus, like, when you're here worshiping on Easter Sunday, and for the first few steps out the door, you're thinking, like, this is really easy. Like, I know I said I would do this all year last year, but I think I'm actually going to do it this year. Like, following Jesus is pretty easy. And then you get home, and you have to have dinner with your family, right? And like the only person in Orlando that wasn't at church on Easter Sunday is the family sitting at the table with you. And they start picking on you and asking you questions and saying sunrise service. We don't do sunrise service here. But sunrise service, really hymns, like old Bible stories, raised from the dead, giving your life. Like, I don't know. And all of a sudden, what felt so easy just a few hours before now has us losing confidence and asking questions. And this is the story of Gideon. As we follow along with God's, uh, sorry, as we follow along with Gideon's story, it is going to instill in us a tremendous sense of confidence, not in ourselves, but in God's grace. What I love about Gideon's story is that, unfortunately, I really relate with Gideon's story. Like, I don't know if you ever do this. You guys are better people than I am. But, like, when I try to raise a child, like, my wife and I, she's great at it. It just seems to come naturally. I'm, like, trying to fumble my way through being a father. And, like, I look around you ever do this where you're like, if that person can keep their kid alive, then surely I won't kill my kid. You ever do that? Like, you don't. I do. Like, I'll be at, like, a gas station. I'll see a kid, like, walking in the bathroom with no shoes on. Like, okay, if that dad can somehow keep that kid alive, my daughter, she has not the worst dad in the world. So, like, I love looking at stories and finding someone I resonate with, especially when I resonate with their weakness, and they're still successful. Like, I, maybe that's just how my mind works. But Gideon's story is like a constant struggle with himself. But what God accomplishes through him for God's people has been talked about for 3,500 years. 
In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but God gives Gideon credit for his faith. And I think about Gideon's faith, really, like he, every time he turned around, he was asking God, are you sure? Can you prove it to me? But Gideon's life was a life of simply keeping in step with God, following him with as much faith as he could muster, one step at a time. All right, that was verse 24. Then Gideon built an altar to the Lord and worshiped. And he said, the Lord is peace. To this day, uh, to this day it stands still at Orpha, which belongs to the Abizarites. Everything going to be up and kind of to the right from this point forward. Verse 25, it says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and use them to pull down the altar of Baal your father has. I've circled that in my Bible. We'll come back to it in just a minute. Pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Cut down the Asherah that is beside it, which was a large pole they used to worship foreign gods, and build an altar there instead to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here. With stones laid in due order, take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. It's just how they worshiped in the old days with sacrifices. Verse 27, so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid, see there's Gideon stumbling along the way, of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Okay, so here's the thing. We're going to get to like the high point of Gideon's life, but what I really like love is the details of the preparation. Because I think so often, like if you read a kid's children, like a children's Bible, and you like flip through and you see the beautifully illustrated pictures that look nothing like what they would have actually looked like, but you just hear the high points. Like David took a stone and he slung it around a few times and he hit Goliath, but we never think about the preparation that went into it. We think about Gideon having this massive army that God whittles down, we're going to see, to just 300 people. So God gets all the glory. And still, Gideon and these 300 mighty men, they uh, watch God work in their midst, and they're just blown away. And the story has persevered for thousands of years. But before Gideon was called to accomplish incredible things for God and with God, Gideon was told to get rid of the idols he had established back home. Now, again, this is not part of the story. When we talk about Gideon as the hero, we talk a lot about, but it shows us several things. First of all, Gideon wasn't perfect. Like he had some idols back home. God didn't choose Gideon because Gideon was so faithful or that Gideon had his life together. He chose Gideon because he knew that Gideon could put his faith in him and follow him. Man, that gives me so much confidence that God doesn't choose us because we have everything put together. In fact, God puts everything together for us. That is the message of the cross, that while we were still sinners, meaning while we didn't have it figured out, and when we really dig into it, which we don't have time for today, while we were in active rebellion against God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that he put our life back together. For we are God's workmanship, he would say later in Ephesians, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God does the work of putting our life together. He doesn't look for someone who's got it all figured out. He just looks for someone who's willing to follow him. It also shows us um, that Gideon had some idols. Now, when we think about idols, we think about idols in the Bible, we think about these, these stone images, right? Like they were like the Baals, and it would just be like the stone, they'd carve out this image to a god, and they loved those gods, and the people of God even started following those gods because they could control those gods. Baal was the, the fertility god for kids and their crops and everything they needed. They needed fertile land and they needed fertile families and like they needed that. So they created a God that they thought they could control, which is stupid on its face, but we do the same thing. 
And before God, before Gideon can go accomplish incredible things with God and for God, he has to go back home and clean out his home from the idols they've stored away. Now, again, we probably don't have idols tucked away in the closet, these idols of stone uh, stored away at home. If you do, like, it's pretty clear, just get rid of those things. We don't have an Asherah pole out front of our house, but we can worship things like the flag on our flagpole. Like, and I say that, I had this written in my sermon. I never even thought about it. I just want to be like fully transparent with you. I had this written in my sermon. Like, we can't, an idol, let me say this, an idol is anything we look to to give us what only God can give us. Okay? Safety, security, satisfaction, joy, peace, fulfillment. An idol is anything we look to to give us what only God can give us. And I thought, you know what would be like a really clever like play is like, we don't have an Asherah pole, but we can worship the flag on our flagpole. I was standing out there greeting, because we look to the, the United States to give us what only God can give us. I was standing out there greeting five people on the way down. There's only 55 people here. 10% of you said, Adam, you look like an American flag. It's like, okay, that illustration's not going to work. It's a little too close to home. But I say that as, as kind of a joke, and because like I joke when I get uncomfortable, but do we not do that? Like, do we not look to our country and our military to provide for us? Like, do we not get instant anxiety the moment the dollar dips a little bit because of inflation? Because I do. Like, I don't have that many dollars. If they start going down in value, like, I get really anxious. And all of a sudden, I realize that I have put a lot of trust in the few things I've accumulated in this world, and I'm lacking trust in God. And I realize, like, I can idolize the few dollars we've saved away as a family. But an idol can be anything, anything that we put in place of God, anything from a relationship to a cruise ship. Like we can look to relationships to give us satisfaction and we can look to things like cruise ships to give us comfort. Those things can only ultimately be found in God. And we know this because think about it. Like how much before you got married, how much of your time did you think, spend thinking like when I get married, I will be perfectly happy. In 15 minutes after you got married, you thought, man, if I could just be single again, I would be happy, right? Like it's the flow of every single relationship. Maybe if you made it 18 or 20 minutes then, but like you woke up and you realized like, hey, I can no longer do what I want. I'm now married, right? Like and, and marriage is great. Marriage is great. If you're not married, it is great. But here's the thing. Marriage cannot give us what only God can give us. Like, we can look to things uh, like retirement and cruising and vacations, all good things. Not, none of those are bad things. Some of those are godly things. But they cannot give us the comfort and the peace that we hope for and long for. Anything from the resources we seek to accumulate, the reputation we try so hard to protect, the career path that we've spent so much time cultivating, even our own family. Good things can become God things if we put them ahead of God. Before Gideon can go accomplish anything with God and for God, God sends him back home. He says, hey, I want you to clear out the idols that are at home. And um, here's one more thing I think that really illustrates to us is, and this is what I found most convicting. And I wish I could say, like, I thought about this all week. I was praying this morning about the sermon. I was like, wow, that's really convicting. Maybe I won't talk about it, but I think we should. Gideon's idols, I think, were Gideon's backup plan. Like, he was ready at this point in the story to go accomplish incredible things with God and for God. Like, he was, he was almost all in. He was ready to go. But he didn't take the initiative to go home and clean out the idols that his family had established. Because he thought, I'm, I'm guessing, because I do this, Gideon thought, like, if God doesn't work out, then I have something to go back to. But God is an all-in God. 
And you know why God is an all-in God? Because God knows those things that we've accumulated at home that we think will provide for us what only God can provide for us, they will disappoint us. How does God know that? Well, he created us, but he's also watched thousands of years of human history, and we are no different. That if we make a good thing a God thing, it will ultimately keep us from experiencing the joy of life with God. God told Gideon, before you come follow me, you need to go home and you need to clean out the idols that you've got at home. I don't know about you, and I can't speak for you. I find that so convicting. Maybe the biggest takeaway before we go any further this week isn't what we go accomplish for God, but what we need to go clean out with God. Put to death, therefore, the things of this world. Paul would write to the church in Colossians. He goes on, he says this, Uh, in verse 28. He says, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. So that's just their way of saying when everyone in the town woke up in the morning, they saw what Gideon did at night. He tore down his father's altar. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal, and he cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against them, so Joash is Gideon's father, will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself." Because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, verse 32 says, Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerob Baal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down Baal's altar. All right. So Gideon tears down the altar. Gideon is obedient to God's instruction. In the moment the town wakes up, because of his obedience, Gideon begins to face opposition. I mean, no, wouldn't it be awesome if when God called us to lead, he would just clear the way before us? It'd be like if God was calling us to lead people through a blizzard, if like God could just be the snowplow in front of us, taking all of the obstacle or obstruction from in front of us, we would just follow clearly in his path. But here's the thing. When we follow God, we should expect opposition because opposition should be expected. It's not the exception. Here's what I find so fascinating when you dig into the story. Whose altar to Baal did Gideon tear down? his. He didn't tear down someone else's personal property, though he probably should have, right? If you see someone destroying their life, like someone's like, you know, one drink away from alcohol poison, say, hey, but I'm going to take that drink from you and get rid of it. Like, that's probably a kind thing to do. But Gideon didn't even do that. Like, he didn't go to his neighbor's house and tear down his neighbor's altar. He just started cleaning up his own life out of obedience. And the moment the town woke up and saw that Gideon was willing to challenge the status quo to exchange the common for the holy, the way that they had been used to, even if it produced seven Seven years of miserable oppression at the hand of God's enemy, as soon as they saw Gideon starting to clean up his own life, they wanted to put him to death. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's like when you start eating healthy and your uh, fat friend says like, whoa, 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 hey, you're going to start making me look bad. You're like, that's kind of the point, dude. You know, like, figure like if it's one of us is going to get married, it's going to be the guy with the six pack, not the guy with six donuts, right? Like, just a silly illustration, but we see that in all of life. When you start following God, even in your own life, you're going to face opposition. Opposition is to be expected. And I think we know this. Honestly, I think we even expect it. We should expect it. But if I'm honest, isn't it hardest, like Gideon, when it comes from his own friends and neighbors and family? 
Like, isn't opposition for following God most painful when it's coming from people we love the most? And I kind of made a joke about Easter, but for some of you guys, like, that's your reality. Like, you came to church, and you were so excited, and you're here to set up, and you helped tear down, and you sang the songs, and you put your faith in Jesus, and, like, and you just felt like you were walking in step with God when you left here. And the moment you walked home, a father or a mother or a friend or a brother or a sister or some uncle you don't even like, you don't know why your dad keeps inviting him around. I don't know. Just like to cut you down. Like one comment after another. Like you know God and you know what he says is true. But man, it stings when it's a close friend criticizing you walking in obedience. Maybe it's a coworker that every day you show up and you just like, they don't know how long you've been praying for them. They don't know how you've invited your community group in to pray for them. They don't know that there's a church praying for them that they might experience immeasurably warrant. They might get out of their own way and you show up and they just start tearing you down. And it's like, man, like I know what God says is true. I know what God says is true. I know that he can be trusted. But if I'm going to be honest, this just hurts. Honestly, even if it hurts, when God has called you, the worst they can really do is call you names. Do you notice how they changed Gideon's name? Like this kid that they grew up with, like their neighbor, you know, we've got to play with Gideon today. We're going to start calling him Jared Baal. He's Baal's problem now. Going from Gideon, this name, this hero that God was going to use, that, that boy's Gideon's problem. But it, it communicates the truth that even if it hurts, when God has called us, the worst someone else can do is call you names. They might call you foolish. They might I don't know. What do they call Christians these days? I don't know. Whatever. They might call you some kind of name, call you crazy. But what you know is that God has called you to be a leader, and you lead by example. What I think is so fascinating in this story is we don't know what happens with Gideon's father, but when the town comes for Gideon, Gideon's father, who had an altar to Baal, says, hey, leave Gideon alone. If Baal's a god, like he's questioning Baal's validity. He's questioning his idols because he's seeing the faith of his son. We're not going to skip the passage, but Matthew chapter 13, Jesus basically shows up in his hometown and he's preaching some of the greatest parables. And they're not even like the hard parables. Like it's easier to, you know, uh, for, a rich man, or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. It's not even like those parables. It's like, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand and this is how good it is. It's like pearls and, and it's something everybody wants and we're going to sow seed and tell everybody about it. And the town, they like kind of stand on the sidelines like, who is this guy? Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't he just a carpenter? Why doesn't he go back to the things that he's supposed to be doing? What is going on? And Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. Like when we follow Jesus, opposition should be the expectation, not the exception. I know that's a tremendous sales pitch for following Jesus, but stick with the story. Verse 33 says this. It says, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan, and they camped in the valley of Jezreel. So while the people of God are arguing about the work of God in Gideon's life, the enemy is advancing into God's territory. The enemy is they're crossing the Jordan. Now, again, we read through this because we we've never been there or most of us haven't. But the Jordan, from what I understand, like that's the barrier land. Like as long as the enemy stayed on the other side of the, the Jordan, Israel was pretty safe. But the enemy is coming right through the Jordan River into the land. Uh, so the enemy is advancing. Verse 34, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet 
And the Abyssalites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they too went up to meet him. Now these are the two verses that stopped me in my tracks as I was studying this text a few weeks ago. Because Gideon, just a few minutes ago, was hiding in a hole in the ground. And God shows up and he calls him. And Gideon's like, God, I'm not sure. I don't think I can. If you knew me the way I know me, and God says, I do know you. In fact, I know you better. You're a mighty man of valor. And he says, well, let me go get an like, uh, offering and offering. If everything works out just perfectly, I'll worship you, and then I'll still figure it out. He goes from that guy cowering to a leader calling God's people to action. God's people who were oppressed by God's enemy, God's people who were nearing starving to death and just uh, fed up with the, the fallout from their sin. And now Gideon, this mighty man of valor, sounds the trumpet. What is the difference? What is the difference? Verse 34, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. What set Gideon apart? It was God's spirit with him. And I really wanted to cover with you all of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8. I don't think we're going to be able to do that. So here's how the story goes. Read it when you get home. It's really good. Gideon gathers all of these people. He, sends, he sounds the trumpet and people come from all over because now they're inspired because God has called a leader. People don't drift towards God, but when God sends a leader, people are usually willing to follow because they can see God at work. And so these tribes, they gather around Gideon. All of a sudden, this man who is hiding in a hole in the ground is leading an army. And still one more time, Gideon has to go back, get a fleece, do the thing, two nights, ask God to confirm. That's a whole other story for another day. And God says, Gideon, this is who you are. This is what I've called you to. So take your army. He has this massive army. And in chapter 7, verse 2, it says, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved you. This verse befuddles me. Too many people, we're going to see uh, in chapter 8, if we had time, that there are about uh, 133,000 men f fighting for Midian. Gideon has 30,000. So like right now, at this point, they're outnumbered a lot to a little. But God looks at that scene and he says, there's still too many people. If you go win now, 30,000 against 130,000, you're going to think in the back of your mind, somehow I did this. And the point of God's story is always that God did this for us. From Gideon to Jesus on the cross and everything in between is that God goes to war for his people. That we fight from victory, not for victory. Again, another sermon for another day. And so Gideon, uh, so God gives instruction and 22,000 of the 32,000 go home. He's got 10,000. And Gideon thinks, man, it's time to go. And God says, that's still too many people. We're going to do like one more test. It's like a drinking test. Whoever drinks this way and that way. And, God, and Gideon, long story short, is left with 300 people. So now the odds are 300 and a 99% reduction in forces. 300 people versus 133,000. God says, the the numbers are right for you to go to war against your enemy. So when, so when you win, and you will win, people will know that God is the one who gave your enemy into your hands. And Gideon leads the 300 men, and they have this, this thing where they surround the camp, and they look more like a marching band than an army. Anyone in the marching band in high school? Good, so I can make, oh, never mind. I was going to make jokes, but I didn't want to. You know, I want Doug and Brenda to come back. All right. You don't really look at the marching band like they're the mightiest men in the school, do you? Like, like no offense, but the girls' softball team could usually beat up the marching band, right? Like, the marching band, like trumpet and trombone, no offense to the softball team, no offense to the marching band. Um, anyway, the point is, like, God has these guys with trumpets in hand and torches, and that's it. They surround the city, and God gives this victory 
to his people. And 2,000, sorry, 3,500 years later, we're still talking about the story. Why? Why? Because God's glory was on display in Gideon's life. God's glory was on display in Gideon's life because the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. I want to leave you with this verse from Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. And we'll close with this. He says, You, however, Paul writes to the church in Rome, reflecting on everything we celebrated last week at Easter Sunday, says, You, however, like to regular Christians, like you and me, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Well, how do we know the Spirit of God dwells in us? Because we put our faith in Jesus. We've put our faith in Jesus. We've united our life with him in Christian baptism. We've been following him, and his spirit dwells in us. The spirit of the almighty God dwells in us. How is that possible? I don't know. Read your Bible. You'll figure it out. Anyone, he goes on, who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There is a distinction. You're either following Jesus or you're not following Jesus. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And he's just summarizing with this incredible theological language that God has raised us from death to life, both in this life and for the life to come. He's breathed life into us through his Holy Spirit because of the work accomplished for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to what? your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Leave that verse on the screen if you would, Savannah. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, the translation I grew up with say, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Like the same spirit that when Jesus, last week we celebrated, was taken off that cross and laid in that tomb, there he lay lifeless. The spirit of God came into him and raised him from the dead. The translation I grew up with said, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here lies the good news of the gospel. Because whether we realize it or not, all of us have more in common with Gideon than we would like to admit. All of us find ourselves threshing wheat in a wine press, just going through the motions, just trying to get enough out of today to get through the day. And God says there is immeasurably more to life. There's immeasurably more. And the, the immeasurably more is you get to do life with God. And Gideon goes from hiding in a hole of the ground to clothed with the Spirit of God, leading the people of God against the enemy of God so that God would receive glory. We launched this church a few years ago with one verse in mind. Paul would say to the church in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, it will not be on the screen, so if you want to jot it down, Ephesians chapter 3, he says this, he says, Now to him, to God who's able to do far more abundantly, immeasurably more than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Reading the story of Gideon, I think, man, there are so many different places we can land the plane today. So many different points of application where conviction is clear and we can have confidence and courage and clarity. So many different parts. But here's what I want I think God wants to say to his church today, here's what he's been saying to me all week. What sets us apart is that the Spirit of God dwells in us. 
We could have a church of 32,000 people like Gideon. God would say, that's too much. If you grew, they're just going to think you grew by attrition. Like, like you're just going to continue growing, rather. They're just going to think you grew. He says, no, no. You're going to be a church plant launched with 35 people nine weeks before COVID hits. Things are going to get well. You're going to think it's about you. I'm going to close the church and all the churches for like six months. You're going to relaunch in a Presbyterian church that's building, that's going to like welcome you with an open arms and then spit you out a few months later. And I'm going to take you from place to place. But as I look back about what God accomplished last week on Easter Sunday, I see, man, God is building his church. When people look at Eastside, that prayer that we've been praying together for three years, that God would use us to plant a church that only he can take credit for, there's no doubt. When God sees people drawn to himself through his church, when he sees people putting their faith in Jesus for the very first time. And one of the things I get most excited about is people coming back to Jesus for the first time in a long time and realizing, man, there is more to life than the life I can make of my own, that he would get glory through his church. That's what I want to invite you this week and every week to be a part of. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. It blows me away this week and every week that we can look back at these stories that are 3,500 years old and we can see in the story of Gideon someone who just seemingly stumbled his way in your direction and you used him to set your people free. Father, as we think about how we can lead others, I look at the world around us and I see, man, just from a stone's throw from our doorstep, there are so many people who are enslaved to sin enslaved to selfishness, who are like Gideon, just trying to thresh enough wheat in the wine press to get enough out of the day, to get through the day. God, you've called them and you've called us to more. And so I pray that whatever part of Gideon's story needs to resonate with our story, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as we sing, that you would sanctify us through the truth. Your word is truth. As we make much of you, you would make yourself known to us. God, what are you calling me to do today? Do I need to hear your voice, your call, that we are not limited by our circumstances or our sin, but you see us for who you've created us to be and you've accomplished for us in Jesus more than we could ever accomplish on our own and embrace the sacrifice of Christ for the very first time. Do we need to worship? Do we need to celebrate who you are and what you've accomplished for us? Do we need to go home today and get rid of some idols? Let your Holy Spirit start cutting away the things in our life that we have grown dependent on that are keeping us from depending on God. Do we just need your Holy Spirit to encourage us because we are, we know we're going home to someone who's going to criticize us for the very thing we are most excited about, the life we have in Jesus. And it breaks our heart that they can't see it. Father, maybe today's the day that you use our story to speak to them, like Gideon's father seeing him and his faith for the very first time. Father, do we need to go with courage and call your people to action? That when you go from this place, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, someone in the grocery store line, invite them to follow you the way that we followed you. Like Gideon sounding the trumpet, say, there is a God who is calling us to immeasurably more today than we can ask for imagine. God, wherever we find ourselves today, I ask that it is your Holy Spirit that would come alongside us, dwell inside of us, and make us look more like you today than we were yesterday. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.